As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show. On today's episode, we'll be looking back on the latest tranche of Champions League games, where Liverpool's place in the final eight was in danger for about 30 seconds, where Bayern Munich ran up a very German scoreline against their Austrian neighbours, where PSG were cruising like a supercar until a big Benz cut them up and ran them off the road. And if a sporting Lisbon tree falls in the Man City woods and no one's there, does it make a goalless sound? My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who celebrates all of Karim Benzema's goals by raising a white lawn chair above his head. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. You got to. It's the only way to celebrate when you're that emotionally caught up. Man, that was a good game. That was real fun. Uh, I enjoyed that immensely. I enjoyed yesterday's show somewhat. I feel like you all took the opportunity for me not to be there to just talk about things that you knew would have made me annoyed had I have been there. So, okay, we've been on air like 20 seconds. You're already into it. Go on. Uh, What do you want to say? I mean... Doors versus Wheels comes up. I, I, I feel I feel chagrined not to have been there for that. But then Joe's trading Eunice Musa. <laughs> Graham is trading Wea and Turner and Adams, which made me curse at him uh, from my home. You all talk about Harry Maguire as captain, which was depressing. You talked about someone dating Alex Ferguson, which is an amazing story. And we get into Ryan's first ever on camera work, which I agree we all need to see. As does Twitter. It just feels like it just feels like a lot of stuff was said, and I'm not quite sure how to feel about it. Especially Graham trying to trade Tyler Adams. Unacceptable, Graham Yule. I was trying to trade him for Dusan Vlahovic. Like that. He's he's good. He's very good. <laughs> Fine. See, Taylor, are you suggesting that we save the good stuff for when you're not here? Is that what you mean? I feel like I feel like you kept your powder dry until I wasn't mm. here. Then you all you all got your takes that would make Taylor angry out of the way really fast. That's exactly what we did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also like how you said you, we talked about do- doors versus wheels. Until Ryan brought that up yesterday, uh-huh. I, I didn't realize people were talking about that. You say that as if that's been on the agenda for a number of weeks and we waited yeah. until you were off to talk Grant, about that. I have been pitching doors versus wheels for three oh. weeks now. You know that. You all have been turning it down over and over again. I feel like it could be a oh. whole show. I don't. I just love how it immediately triggers strong answers that like that everybody feels very very like hard like hard 
Like, they are in that zone. This is what I feel. This is how it's going to be. And I love that in every video I saw, uh, the Palace players was the big one of players answering that one. Graham, you followed the line of, like, there's an answer to this, though, right? Or are you just going to drive us insane the whole day? Every player looks <laughs> so annoyed when they found out there wasn't actually an answer, which I think is fair. Um, Graham, yeah. we're finding out that you missed Taylor Rockwell's lengthy PowerPoint presentation about doors and wheels uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> it's embarrassing for you. Yeah. Did, did it, on that PowerPoint presentation, did he have on it that um, my line of logic, which was cars versus houses, that cars also have doors, which someone pointed out to me yes. on Twitter, and I felt very foolish after that had been pointed out to me. Yes, they do indeed have, have doors, multiple yeah, doors. Yeah, when Ryan was like, cars have five wheels, you know, they've got that spare. I was like, they also have five doors pretty usually. Sometimes they have two. <laughs> Sometimes they do have two. That's that's true, Ryan. That's <laughs> anyway, before my, my intros have been thoroughly derailed. We've heard some voices I've not introduced yet. Hello, Joe Larry. How are you? I am well, Ryan Bailey. I'm still thinking about doors versus wheels. I, I yep. think the answer is wheels, but honestly, mm. uh, there's no way to know. A new element that I also found out on our Twitter thread was that every drawer in your, your cabinets has four wheels on it, right? At a minimum. At a minimum, yeah. At a minimum. At a minimum. Yeah, I think my, like, because someone will have, like, the, if they're heavy duty drawers, they'll have, like, two to three wheels per corner. So then you might even have 12 wheels or eight wheels. It's but wild. then you have, then you have cabinets as well, and, and those true. are doors. And it, 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 this gets really murky as soon as you try to, to go down enough layers. Because, you know, what counts as a door? Do toy doors count? I think toy mm-hmm. wheels should count then. Yep. How literal is this term? Do doors that don't open count? I mean, this gets messy real fast, guys. I don't have, I don't have wheels in my cabinet. Where are you wheeling your cabinets to? Wheels, wheels in your drawers, doors on your cabinets. Maybe I misspoke. When you, when you pull your drawer out, there's the wheels allow that to happen. Unless they don't, maybe you've got some oh, like anti gravity. Right. I get. That could be I thought well. you mean. I thought you meant like the whole unit, not just the drawers and the unit. Right? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. You don't have you. you don't have mobile kitchens in Scotland. That's that's all the rage <laughs> here in America. You can just roll it around other people's houses. That way, you can bring your house with you when you go. Great. What yeah. what is your baking station stationary? You can't wheel it around your large kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately it's stationary. We didn't upgrade to the mobile one though when we moved yeah. in. The Great that- British Bake Off tent has no doors because it's a tent, but it does have those individual stations which have wheels. See now it keeps going. It keeps going. Graham, you're just asking for your pastry to be overproofed. It's embarrassing, honestly. <laughs> This is the slowest intro to the show ever. Graham Rutherford is here, by the way, everybody. Hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you? I'm very good. The wheels and doors are coming off this show. They're coming off off at Chelsea as well. We maybe should talk about that a little bit as well before we we get into our Champions League action. Um, Moving news story, of course, but we're learning this morning as we record on Thursday. uh, Roman Abramovich attempts to sell Chelsea have been halted after, uh, as we posited on this show, his UK assets have been frozen. Um, The club have uh, a license to carry on with football-related activities, uh, but also, interestingly, some Tidbits coming out from this Sam Wallace saying that Russian regulations license that they've now been uh, now working under prohibits them from spending more than 20 grand on any away game travel. So that could um, hinder some Champions League logistics. Maybe they're going to fly like EasyJet or Ryanair now. Uh, Graham, I've no idea how that... On the Megabus. Yeah, on the bus. Oh, my goodness me. Oh, no. And three, the mobile provider who sponsored their shirts at the time saying that their £40 million a year sponsorship deal is now under review with more sponsors likely to follow. Not a fun time to be a Chelsea fan, Taylor Rockwell. 
Not at all. And I appreciate that the Supporters Trust put out a couple comments that were basically like, this seems unfair. Like, we don't want to say fully that it's unfair, but this seems aggressive. And to be honest, it, it does. But then at the same time, I understand where it's coming from and I support where it's coming from. So it's it's very confusing. And I, And at the end of the day, I cannot tell if this is one of those things that will be publicly announced, but then it ends up being the case that, like, nothing really changes that much or if this will indeed be a pretty like disastrous moment for Chelsea as a club because if Abramovich mm. can't sell and they can't pay their debts and they can't spend on players or spend on match day fixtures and whatnot, I don't quite know how the club continues to function. My 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 hunch, and this this is completely a hunch at, at this stage. There uh, there is a lot of uncertainty around this situation for Chelsea, but my hunch is that they will be allowed to sell. It will just be the British government that kind of facilitates the deal or, or picks a, a new owner, and I think that probably would be. A fair outcome because I, th- I think it's unfair that a lot like Chelsea fans are being punished and even yeah. Chelsea players and so on but also I do understand why sanctions are happening and I do think that is important and what we're seeing now is a culmination of stuff that should have happened in the UK which has allowed Russian money into London in particular that this should have happened a long time ago so that this is the uh, the culmination of a lot of things but I do believe it seems like there's a lot of bids coming in for Chelsea and once those firm up my prediction is that they will be allowed to to be sold and that the, the government will be basically pick a bid and then that'll be it is there a reason like like is it just because uh uspanov doesn't own the majority of everton is that why this doesn't happen elsewhere yeah so uh farhad moshiri owns the majority of everton yeah. um and uspanov owns a stake and okay. has sponsorship deals through a, a, a number of companies so yeah that's why that hasn't happened to everton i think gents the time has come for total soccer show to make a bid for chelsea football club um, yeah, I, I think we passed the fit, fit and proper persons test. Our only That's frozen almost. assets are um, Graham Rutherford's honor and Elsa bedsheets. So um, I, I think I think we'd be good to go. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how much those are worth though. Maybe like some of my shirts <laughs> might be worth more, like my football shirts. Some of those special edition ones. That's true. We should, we could get a sizable loan to buy Chelsea to uh, against your shirt collection. I think Graham. I think we could. It, make I mean, that. it would have to be sizable. Uh, sizable, yes, is the <laughs> operative word there. <laughs> Graham, anyway, what is what? Wait, I have I have more questions now. Go Graham, on. we're going to make this intro go longer. Graham, what is the one shirt that you absolutely would not part with? Oh, uh, I've probably shown it to you. The, the Cantona one from ah, the nineties, yes. the yeah. the black one that Attaboy. he infamously. Attaboy. Not the match-worn one, not the actual one that he wore when this happened, but obviously when he kicked that fan in the stand, I have the, the replica shirt of that. So, I like it. Yeah, probably I like it one. a lot. I like it a lot. Is that a sharp view cam on the front there? I think it is, yeah, in yellow. It's very nice and did, iconic. And did anybody old, ever so. have a sharp view cam? It sounds like something that's very much defunct now. Uh, <laughs> did, did anyone own them at the time? <laughs> Well, they they had a very prominent sponsorship, so I would hope at least some people did, Graham. We've yeah, talked so uh, so the NFTs though, and no one owns those, so you can buy them used on on Etsy for thirty five dollars. No way, <laughs> <laughs> uh, up to fifty, sometimes seventy, it seems. So they're still there. It feels wow. like for nostalgia purposes, not for the innovative technology Im- employed by the device. You're not talking about NFTs. That's we've my gone back bad. to sharp view cams now. I'm yeah, yeah, I was so confused yeah. there yeah. for a second. <laughs> cool. Let's let's do the soccer. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that soccer, baby. Now I'm picturing pictures of monkeys holding camcorders. <laughs> yeah. uh, we should uh, we should move on to the Champions League. Liverpool nil into Milan one. Liverpool going through two one on aggregate. Liverpool losing its first home game in over a year, but winning an aggregate. Excuse me. Um, about half a minute between Inter's goal uh, from from Latour Martinez, a very good goal indeed. Indeed, and then Alexis Sanchez getting his second yellow card, which kind of killed off the game. Um, Joe, your thoughts on how this one played out? It seemed to me like you could make the argument that Inter were the better team for large swathes of this contest um, and they were certainly more competitive than many Premier League teams have been at this stadium. No, that is that is true. They were com- more competitive than a lot of other teams have been against Liverpool. I don't think I buy into the line of thinking that Inter were better for large periods of this game. They, they certainly were on the front foot for stretches of the second half. They come out of halftime, and and you get some chances from them. They have a chance on a set piece, and then they have a a couple chances in open play on the break. Alexis Sanchez has a header off of that set piece in the 47th minute, and then Lautaro Martinez has a shot on the break in the 59th minute. And then, of course, you get that goal in the 61st minute. So they were dangerous at times, but the, the key phrase there for me is at times. As the team down two goals heading into this game, Inter had to be the protagonist. They had to go out and and do the aggressive attacking work because while Liverpool will always do some of that because it's exactly how they play under Jurgen Klopp, they didn't desperately need goals in the way that Inter did. They literally did not need goals. They just had to not concede two, and that's exactly what happened. I I thought in this game, the the key matchup was Inter's front two versus Liverpool's centre-backs. And that's a very reductive way to sort of look at this game. But we can zoom out a little bit too and think about it as, okay, Liverpool had a lot of possession in this game, and they did, right? They were high up the field in that 4-3-3. They ended with 62% possession. So Inter clearly didn't choose to be proactive in that possession kind of way under Inzaghi, which is fine, right? You can still win games without that. We know this. So they decided to sit a little bit deeper in that 5-3-2 block And their MO in this game was to let Liverpool move forward and then Inter would attack in transition and they would use Martinez, they would use Alexis Sanchez. I don't think it's a surprise that Edin Dzeko was on the bench for this game, or at least it wasn't uh, wasn't a surprise after seeing Inter's game plan in this game. They were trying to get him behind. They were trying to push forward with that front two with Vidal pushing forward out of central midfield and breaking the space. The challenge was they did so little breaking into space that was actually dangerous because Virgil van Dijk and Joel Matip were dominant in this game. I thought those two players were so, so good, and they snuffed out almost everything that Inter could throw at them, and that, for me, when when the big central tenant of your game plan, which was to attack in transition, isn't happening, and you're losing those battles, I, I don't know. I don't think Inter had a whole lot to do that was really positive in this game, other than that beautiful strike from Martinez. Yeah, that, Joe, was what confused me. Fair enough, not starting Dzeko in this one, but for him not to come on at all when he's got those Liverpool centre-backs, he could have done a bit of hold-up play. They might have yeah. been able to switch things up if they brought him on. It felt like they had a weapon. He scored, he scored was, a couple at the weekend, I think, didn't he? Why, he, why? he was coming on uh, until yeah, and that's the thing, the red card. The red card. Yeah, the, Ryan, I think the red uh, card okay. totally throws that game plan out the window because you can't really... I mean, I guess you could put him on for Martinez at that point, but then you lose any hope you have of really getting him behind. And Martinez does come off, obviously, in this game in the 75th minute. But yeah, I think I think Inzaghi's sub plan kind of goes out the window with that second yellow. Graham, uh, were your thoughts on the way Inter um, uh, played in this one? Um, their game plan, uh, maybe some individual performances here. I thought, you know, for a team that hasn't been in the knockout stage for 10 years, they did themselves pretty proud over the two games. Yeah, generally. I, th- I think their performance was, was quite deceptive um, in a lot of ways because I'm with you, Ryan. To kind of, if you if you're if you were if you're not looking that deeply into this 
Inter performance, you, you probably do think they played really well over the, over the two legs. They had a lot of dangerous territory. Um, there were moments where it looked like they were threatening an opportunity, but the, the difference was that those opportunities rarely came. And if you look at the expected goals over the two legs, Inter's came to 0.82. Um, so not even a you know one, and Liverpool's came to three point two seven. So on that basis, the the right the the correct team won. You know Liverpool created more, and even in this match, a, a game where Liverpool weren't at their best, I think it's fair to say they they still hit the post twice through Mohamed Salah. Virgil Van Dijk has a really good opportunity from a corner as well. So they they could have uh, they could have scored goals in this as in this match as well. But the frustrating thing for me was that every time and Joe's referenced it heavily already but that 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 battle between the front two of Inter and the, and the, the Liverpool centre-backs it actually got quite funny um, when it was Martinez versus Van Dijk because there, there were a number of opportunities where Martinez had the chance to go at Van Dijk and he just did not fancy it at all he just back <laughs> he just backs away it was almost comical at times um, as I say there was there was this one occasion in the first half where he, ju- he just gives up trying to get past Van Dijk and of course, the 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 goal happens, and that that was the one time that Martinez took a shot before he even got to to Van Dijk, and it paid off. And how many, however many times he puts that in the back of the net, I'd I'd suggest it's a low percentage effort from there. But he manages it this time. And if I'm Virgil Van Dijk, that's the one time where I'm disappointed with with my own defending because he does stand off rather than pressuring pressuring the ball. Nobody in that Liverpool defence does anything to close down the space, and it comes from a Liverpool goal kick as well. That opportunity, so and a poor touch from Matip, I think, is in there as well. So that that was a poor period of play, a sequence of play for Liverpool. But I think Virgil Van Dijk is standing off because he's ex- he's expecting either Martinez to have a go at him or kind of. <laughs> attempt the start of a go at him and then maybe back off a little bit so it was out of character for Martinez to take that shot early and as I say it paid off that one time but generally speaking the whether it was Zeko and Martinez in the first leg or in this case in this leg Sanchez and Martinez as the front two it, it, that was the thing that let them down that that was the Inter's game plan up until them those players was was pretty decent as as good as you can hope for at Anfield and the Champions League away to this Liverpool team but that's where they were lacking quality. Taylor, um, Jurgen, Klopp, Jurgen Klopp after the game uh, said words to the effect of, you know, you have to pick the right games to lose. And this was one of them. Uh, you know, if you're going to break your streak, maybe make it one where it's not consequential. Were Liverpool a bit off in this game? I felt like there wasn't quite the same intensity we'd expect from them on a famous European night. Uh, maybe some passing was off a little bit. I mean, I thought I thought the fullbacks were, were the standout players for me in terms of what they did going forward and for blocking into wide attacks as well. But... They just didn't seem like they were quite 100% there to me, Taylor. I think, I, I wouldn't go that far. I would say that I, I think this is Inter doing everything they can to get back into a tie. And if you're Liverpool, you know they're going to do that. I think to just play your game and hope that that's enough to get the job done, I think would be a little bit naive. So I think you do have to adjust. You have to take into consideration what Inter are going to be throwing at you and how aggressive they're going to be. And maybe that explains why... They aren't quite as fluid as we normally see because they are focused on shutting down Inter's attack whenever they can. With that said, they almost double Inter's total passes. I think it's like 620-something for Liverpool. Uh, higher expected goals, more shots. Possession was pretty pretty ridiculously one-sided. So I think overall, it was a, a fine performance from Liverpool, a good goal from Inter, 
a very unfortunate second yellow from Alexis Sanchez because that really did change this game. We might have gotten a fight back. Then it might have been how did Liverpool respond if Inter did get that second yeah. goal, but they don't, and here we are. That that was the that was the disappointing thing for me, Taylor. Was as soon as that goal goes in, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. We're actually we're actually Liverpool are going to get a test here. We're going to find out a little bit more mm-hmm. about them. Whether this is a poor performance or whether they've got another gear gear to go to. Whether Inter have just taken a pot shot there and uh, you know it's found the top corner, or do they have more to their game? And then within 30 seconds, <laughs> the red card comes and we don't find out any of those things and Liverpool go through. Um, Graham, thoughts on the red card? Was it deserved? Probably not. I I personally thought it was a red card, Agreed. but I thought it, I was I, I genuinely found it interesting that both on the UK and the US broadcasts, all the former players were very much making that argument of. I sometimes feel like this is this is a cop out when former players say you need to have played the game, but it was interesting that all of them were saying that on both sides of the Atlantic on the broadcasts that if you don't if you've not played you you don't understand that. I I. I personally don't see that. I I saw studs outstretched into Fabinho's ankle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but he got the uh, ball just the ball before that, Graham. To be fair, and he wasn't. I know, but you're still in danger. There was no intent to hit Fabinho, was there? It doesn't matter. And it's reckless. No. It's out of control. Yeah. If you can't control your body, uh, because he can't, he goes in and ends up getting the stud, even if he didn't mean to. He's not in control of his body anymore, which to me is the uh, definition yeah. of reckless. Which Endangering an, an opponent. Yeah. To me, yeah. there's there's a gray area there. To me, that feels like if if that's the logic we're employing, then no overhead kick should ever be allowed. That kind of thing, you know. I mean, technically, you're not supposed to. They're they're they are dangerous dangerous plays if if there's a person's head near your foot so yeah I mean it's it's all nuance I think Graham I know what you mean with some of those comments but I do also feel like a couple of those people told on themselves at least in the U.S. broadcast because inevitably I think Mika Richards and I think Jamie Carragher both said you know that to me that that can't be a yellow card you know you've got to understand the moment you've got to understand what you're doing to the game when you give that second yellow and I think a lot of that was like it was so exciting don't kill the excitement of the game and I agree with that it did sort of hurt the spectacle I understand why Inter fans felt like that was uh maybe an unfair one and that he gets the ball and then he goes in what's he supposed to do like change physics but I think that's the risk when you go in the way he did it sort of is you're making the referee make a decision and when there's studs to an ankle that oftentimes is a yellow even if it was unintentional I would put it in the same category as when you go to kick a ball you don't know the player is is like on rushing that player gets the ball and you kick the player you absolutely didn't mean to you were 100% playing the ball and we see that like once a season and it's always this big talking point of should that be a foul but at the end of the day to me the answer is yes well it was Liverpool went through Joseph I think we can agree the right team went through right 100%. Yeah, I I think Inter had a lot of good bits and pieces of these last two games. I honestly thought they were better at times in the first leg than in this leg, but Liverpool were the better team for sure. They were indeed. Liverpool securing their place in the final eight, as did uh, several other teams we will discuss very shortly after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk about the other game on Tuesday evening. Bayern Munich 7, Ebi Salzburg 1. Germans and 7-1 wins. Name a better combo. 1-1 <laughs> in the first leg. And an 8-2 on aggregate. Another 8-2 for Bayern as well. Uh, this one was 4-0 after 30 minutes. Robin Lewandowski scoring the earliest hat-trick in uh, Champions League history. It took him... 22 minutes to do so. Um, according to Opta Joe, the 7-1 victory there was the seventh time Bayern Munich have scored seven-plus goals in a Champions League game. More than double that of any other team in the competition. I was trying to think of the other times they've done it. I, no, there was obviously Barcelona. There was Porto, Shakhtar, Basel. I can't... That, I, I think I'm missing two. Anyway, maybe a listener can <laughs> grab the others. But um, Joe, disappointing from Salzburg, to say the least here. Looking very competitive in the first leg and then flopping whatever this was out on the field. Yeah, Bayern were angry, clearly. <laughs> Good gracious. I mean, the way they come out in this game, there's a chance right off the bat for them in this one. The very first minute, Leroy Sané, Thomas Muller, and Robert Lewandowski worked together to get Lewandowski a shot. And that was very much foreshadowing of everything that was to come. Man, I I just can't help but think, and we can talk more about what Bayern did in this game and how they were so dominant, but I just can't help but think how fortunate we were to watch on back-to-back days Robert Lewandowski play as a number nine and then Kareem Benzema play as a number nine. These are undoubtedly two of the best players of all time and two of the best strikers of all time. Watching them play and watching them score goals is ridiculous. And if Messi and Ronaldo had never existed, which I, I'm not advocating for, certainly, but you know, if, if they hadn't been a part of this soccer dialogue for so long and hadn't drawn so much attention, we would have all been talking more about these players as the legends they are. Robert Lewandowski in this game was exactly who he is almost every single weekend for Bayern Munich and every single midweek game. He was everywhere. And Bayern, for their part, they were everywhere too. Man, they come out of that 1-1 draw on the first leg, they basically reused the shape. They largely reused the personnel, that 3-4-3. The spacing was a little bit different in this one. But Nagelsmann, I thought, got everything right in this game. The players got virtually everything right in this game. That 3-4-3 gave them a plus one in the back against RB Salzburg's two forwards and their 4-4-2 diamond under Yasla. And then they had a plus two, uh, a plus one excuse me, in central midfield, at least in the deeper part, with their double pivot of Kimmich and Musiala against Brendan Aronson. So they had a plus one in each of those lines, which made ball progression really, really easy. You add that to really wide wingbacks in Kingsley Coman and Serge Gnabry that stretched the field and made it extremely difficult for Salzburg to defend from one side of the field to the other horizontally. And you had this incredible recipe for success that we didn't really see executed properly in the first leg. But oh boy, did they execute it properly in this one. They certainly did. Graham, uh, your thoughts on, on Bayern Munich and what they did here. Maybe let's, let's talk about Salzburg, actually, because I thought they had a few decent chances here. It wasn't compl- it was complete domination, but they, they, weren't, they didn't completely roll over. They got a great goal after all from Kjargaard, which is you know, a good sign of more Danish talent coming through there. And the assist from Brendan Aronson, of course, which is a very good assist as well. It seems like they, at least they went for it. They tried to press Bayern and they ultimately paid the price and left 
a shed load of space in their final third, uh, in their defensive third, um, as a consequence. But at least they they tried something here and they did have some attacking chances. So this this was actually the match on Tuesday that I started off watching because, look, I still had Bayern as as heavy favourites to go through, but they had they drawn at the weekend. Recent results have haven't been all that great by their usual usual standards. Salzburg, I thought in the first leg were were unlucky not to not to win that match and not to come away with more than than just a one one. So I actually started watching watching this match. Um, on the suspicion that maybe this was where we were going to get the, the the competition on the night, and the first couple minutes backed up that belief because Bayern Munich have a chance after one minute, but then uh, Red Bull Salzburg come flying forward as well, and they have a really good a really good chance as well that's kind of diverted by the post by a a, a last ditch Bayern Munich defensive tackle, and if that goes in, you, you you do just wonder kind of how how that affects the the contest. I still think Bayern Munich score a lot of goals because it seemed like they were set up. T- to do that, but but you are right. I, this is an exciting Salzburg team. I think they paid for a little bit of inexperience. There were times in this match where they were they were still trying to dribble out on the edge of their box. And look, I understand it's difficult. Bayern were suffocating them at times with that. That um, at times it was a front a front six. You know they had uh, Lewandowski, Coman as Joe says, Coman and, and uh, Gnabry as as the wing backs. But then you have Sane and Muller, and then backed up by Musiala, who I know was playing in as part of the double pivot. But he's a he's an attack minding attack minded midfielder as well. You know ordinarily he'd play as the number ten or or maybe even out wide. So this was a Bayern Munich team set up to suffocate Salzburg, and there were times where I just wanted them in the first leg. Salzburg did a really good job of not overcomplicating things and this is going to sound uh, very simplistic but just kind of hitting the channels and getting Adamu and uh, Adeyemi to, to run and, and and win those balls and there were times where they were just trying to dribble through Bayern and I'm thinking no you just play it a little bit one but more one dimensional and you'll actually get a little bit more success I think and they did get some some success they did get out on Bayern but not enough to make this a, any sort of contest so a, a learning experience I do think Salzburg are always the sort of team they're building towards something and obviously their their best players get uh, picked off by bigger clubs as we've seen in, in previous years. But even by their usual standards, I think this is quite a, a a green team. There's a bit of development still to come from a lot of those, those players and maybe a lot of those players do stay for next season and I'm interested to see what comes next for them. Taylor, is there any cause for concern that at this stage of the Champions League we have uh, a victory this big, um, that there's this much par- uh, lack of parity between the two sides at this stage? I don't know, because like, if you told me that the aggregate score was going to be 8-2 to two Bayern, that, that feels about right for, for them playing RB Salzburg, not to be disrespectful to Salzburg, but they're just in different leagues, literally, and also figuratively. And, and Bayern, I mean, nine points ahead of Dortmund, who have a game in hand still, but they're, as always, dominant. And so you look at this fixture, and if you told me the first leg was 4-2 Bayern and the second leg were 4-0 at home for Bayern, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds about right. So 8-2 in the end kind of makes sense, and that Salzburg were able to get that draw, I think shows that Bayern can't just roll opposition. They can't just sort of be loose at the back and throw everyone into attack. They have to adjust, and I think we we got a difference between that first first leg and this one, and they've been doing okay in the league. Seven points from, from a possible nine is pretty decent for Bayern. Haven't been scoring the way they did against Salzburg, and it does feel sort of like this was their statement game. We know we can get them. We know we can go at them, and if we go out swinging, we go out swinging, but we're not going to go out swinging, and they sure didn't. So I think it's 
not surprising, but still kind of surprising. I was with Graham. This was the one that I had on on the main the main screen, thinking, "Oh, this could be a big one. It could be a tense affair," and it felt very quickly like it was not going to be. And that is exactly how it played out. So, main screen is a TV. Secondary screen is iPad, uh, laptop, laptop. Mm-hmm. Got it. Sometimes I have one the TV on, and then I have a desktop. So sometimes I'll have one behind me, one in front of me, which is always kind of confusing. And your your writing bureau, where you uh, fill in your notebook as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. yes uh, so, take one more question for you. If it, who's the dream scenario for Bayern to play next? Is it is it Man City based on the matchups we're, we're going to see here? Like my my actual dream would be PSG because I feel like those two teams just going at each other would have been hilarious and no one trying to play any defense since PSG are eliminated. I don't know. Like may, maybe it's Real Madrid. Like I I wouldn't mind seeing Lewandowski versus Benzema and seeing two very good teams that have some flaws but obviously have obvious strengths as well. That would be really good. Tony Cruz versus Bayern Munich would be fun. Uh, let's make that happen. Let's let's get that one on the books. All right, well, we're going to talk Robert PSG, of course, but why don't we very quickly, I'm going to call an audible and squeeze in the other game from Wednesday because there's probably not an awful lot to say about it. Manchester <laughs> City nil, Sporting Lisbon nil. This was 5-0 in the first leg. Uh, a completely academic game, Graham, but um, uh, we, we saw Man City bring on some names that most many of us wouldn't have heard before. We've got uh, Comrade Egan Riley who came on, um, coming in for Carl Walker. Uh, he's a teenager. We had uh, Scott Carson, it says here in my notes, Graham. Goodness me. Wow. Yeah, I mean, um, that's when you know that this tie is over. <laughs> it's when Scott Carson is is coming on for Ederson for the for the, for the last uh, you know stages, whatever it was, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Um, yeah, City. I don't quite know what to say about this game because it just seemed like they they played well within themselves from from the from you know given that they they won the first leg five nil. I'm not going to lie. There were times on Wednesday night watching Real Madrid PSG, a game that was so captivating that I completely forgot there was another Champions League match happening at the same time. So did CBS like... right? because they didn't mention it at all in their halftime or anything. Right? Yeah. Well, it was, it was similar on BT. Um, there weren't any updates, obviously, because there, there were no goals, but they didn't mention it really any any time. Um, looking at the highlights back, they they did have chances in this game. City Sterling has a one on one. Gabriel Jesus has a, a goal ruled out using a you know. VR for an offside. Um, so while it was slightly passive from City, which I can understand given they did the job in the first leg, that they still had opportunities. It was still an archetypal Man City game. The shape was still there. They played in the way that you would expect Man City to play. And as you say, perhaps the, the biggest headline from this match, besides Scott Carson getting a game, was uh, that uh, CJ Egan Riley, a 19-year-old academy graduate. He starts, he gets the full 90 minutes at right back. And it seems like between Foden and Cole Palmer and Liam Delap and now Egan Riley, we we are seeing more academy players starting to make a, a bit of a breakthrough at uh, at City, so I guess it's a, a positive for the the kid that he gets not uh, not only a start at Champions League level but a full ninety minutes. Uh, but it does kind of tell you how comfortable City were in this tie by the yeah. by the second leg. Did anyone see the Scott Carson stat about his last Champions League appearance? I did not. How long has it been since Scott Carson last played in the Champions League, Graham? Um, at least 35 years, <laughs> I would guess. His only previous Champions League appearance came 16 years and 338 days ago for Liverpool when he was 19 years old. That is the <laughs> largest gap between appearances for any player in the competition's history. Thank you to Opta wow. Joe for that one. Joe, is Opta Joe related to you? Yeah, it's he my cousin. All right, cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's me. It's me. <laughs> I also I also saw a stat on Twitter. I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like until that game where Carson comes off that uh, comes on off the bench 
um, Xavi Hernandez had had the highest pa- pass success rate of any of Pep Guardiola's players in the cha- in the Champions League, but Carson now has a hundred percent, so he now sta- yeah. uh, sits at the top of those rankings. Is there is there a sweeter job in soccer than Scott Carson's job? I mean, I'm assuming he no. gets like five figures a week, right? And he, what does he have? What, what, I mean, I'm sure he's very important at the training ground. Maybe he, maybe he's, he's very good at banter. Like, it seems like he's had a he's had a really good ride there. I I maintain that a third string goalkeeper and a third string quarterback are two of the best jobs in sports. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but this but this is a difference between us and elite level yeah. sports people. As we think, yeah, that's a that's a cushy gig. I could do that. But if you're actually in that situation as someone who has been the best in your youth level, uh, and then the best in this team, and then you get to Manchester City, and then you don't play a minute, mm-hmm. like that that might grate on you. And that's maybe why we're not elite level sports people. See, Graham, <laughs> except that that's the flaw in your re- reasoning right there is that by saying we're not elite level sports people, you're implying that Scott Carson is. And I understand that he's played in the <laughs> Premier League, but. But I, I I don't know. I think he's like he is definitely a high level sports person. I'll give you that. Yeah, he's a sports person. There it is. <laughs> and may, maybe he is filled with existential dread from not ever playing, Graham. But hey, he got it. He got a Champions League uh, round of sixteen game out of this week's fixtures for sure. Uh, we'll take a very quick break now. When we come back, the big one: Real Madrid PSG. Back shortly. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk Real Madrid 3, <laughs> Paris Saint-Germain 1. Real Madrid going through 3-2 on aggregate here. 
Paris Saint-Germain doing their knockout stage thing, everybody, falling apart. Karen Benzema getting a, a hat-trick in the second half here after Kylian Mbappe opened proceedings. Taylor Rockwell, yeah. PSG have now lost three of their last four games. There was rumours uh, flying around from some fairly official source- sources of uh, Nasser Al-Khalafi um, and Leonardo, the sporting director, causing some disruption in the dressing room. Uh, some Spanish sources saying police had to be called. Some saying that um, uh, s- slappings, gloved or otherwise, were-, were handed out upon Real Madrid's staff. Um, so lots of drama, basically, after this one. Uh, Gideon, ba- Gideon Balagay, I thought, um, nailed it on the CBS broadcast where he just paused and said they bottled it. Yeah, <laughs> he had he had some good moments in that broadcast. I also enjoyed. Do you think this is it for Pochettino? And he just did a like, eh? <laughs> like, like, like <laughs> teeth gritted. Like it's gonna be a big, big question. Uh, yeah, I, I thought this was. Uh, a ridiculous game of football that I very, very much enjoyed. And yeah, Ryan, I think UEFA have officially commented on those allegations. So it does seem like there will be an investigation into what exactly happened with the the trying to break down the official's door. I'm assuming because they thought it should have been a foul on Donnarumma. I'm not sure what else the officials got quote-unquote wrong. But man, this game. This game was a lot of fun. There is one sort of bummer caveat, but I'll save that for later because right now I just want to be uh, happy and enjoying this result because it was wild. It was wild. Why don't we celebrate Real Madrid for a little bit, Graham? Uh, Kareem Benzema, who time and time again we've said, I, I, I'm just convinced he needs a statue outside the Bernabeu because of the level of service he's given that club over, what, well over a decade, and he's still producing at this level, is truly, truly incredible. Yeah, it is. And, and Karim Benzema, for me right now, is the... And I've thought this for, for a little while, and I understand that this is controversial given a certain Polish striker who's doing his thing in, in, in Germany, but I'll, I'll, I'll reason it out. I think Karim Benzema is the best centre-forward in European football right now and, ha- and has been for a little while, just because of what, what he offers. So obviously, Robert Lewandowski, the numbers that he puts up are, are incredible, and I'm not saying he is a, a, a poacher or anything or one-dimensional, but Karim Benzema, you know, he, he conducts attacks, so he drops deep, he sprays the ball um, out wide he makes runs he gets on the end of chances he's good in the air I don't see any gaps in his in his game and I think the, the closest striker to him in terms of profile is probably Harry Kane and for me Karim Benzema this season has has been better than Harry Kane over the, over the course of the whole campaign and has been for the last kind of two or three years and for him to be doing that at how old is he 33 34 years old he's up there um it, it feels like he's getting better with every season, and and a similar player as well that I have to mention is um is is Luka Modric as well, who is is the level he's playing at this season right now. And I I'm going to repeat what I said in Monday's weekend review because maybe people who don't watch much La Liga thought I was going over the top, but now that we have this match as as further evidence, I'll say it again. I've never seen Modric play better for Real Madrid than, than he is right now. He's playing better than when he won the Ballon d'Or. Um, he'll be 37 in September. And yes, we've seen veteran players perform at this sort of level before. Um, you know, Thiago was 37 last season and, and won the Champions League. But Thiago Silva's playing in the middle of a back three for Chelsea. He's got protection. Luka Modric is nearly 37 and he's more energetic, more influential. He's driving forward with more urgency than I've ever seen him do for Real Madrid. He's the one driving them forwards and it and it kind of defies logic. So when you have Modric and uh, and Benzema driving this, this Real Madrid team forwards, a combined age of what? 70 years old? Must be. Um, that's That's quite 
incredible. And I do think they are better now than they've ever been for Real Madrid, which is, Graham, yeah, as I say, Graham, did incredible. you see the, the, uh, the Modric-Rodrigo story? That's now my favorite thing ever. I didn't. Enlighten me. So Modric found out that Rodrigo's father is 35 years old, uh, which apparently Modric did not believe at first until he met him. Then afterwards, he went to Rodrigo and said, this is Rodrigo talking, quote, he then told me I should respect him as he was old enough to be my father. And since then, he always calls me son and I call him dad. And you could see that in the game <laughs> that they were like celebrating together after the game. They hugged a bunch. They were talking back and forth. But yeah, uh, the footage of Modric in the locker room, like high five and everybody doing a lot of slapping. Ryan, you're not wrong. There was a lot of slapping happening in that locker room. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, Luka Modric as a locker room presence seems to be incredible. He talked to every doctor. He talked to every kit man and trainer. Uh, but then also his on-field performance was ridiculous. And there's the dribble to set up the, what, second goal was it? But then there's the tackle on Messi that is maybe the moment of the game for me. The way he like tracks back. Tackles Messi cleanly, and Messi pops up, Modric pops up, they both walk away, like, placid-faced, Messi is trying to hold it together, but you can see the just frustration and anger on his face in that moment that he's been tackled the way he was, and that really, you could hear the crowd respond to that, you could see everybody get up for it. Uh, Luka Modric was incredible last night. Um, another candidate for easiest job in soccer after Scott Carson, by the way. Uh, unused substitute Gareth Bale didn't even have to come on. I think that might be a good uh, a good candidate. Here. Yeah, and and he's getting paid a fair bit more than Scott Carson is. Yeah. Let me tell you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he's got it. He's got it made there, and I don't think he really cares that much from what from what we're told about it. Joe, um, tell us about Real Madrid and what they did here, and maybe conversely. Why PSG are the way they are? Why? Do, why how can they control games? Will uh, have relative control over games and then just flop in the second leg like this? Why? What did Madrid do to to force this on them? It's a tricky question, Ryan. I mean, we can look directly at that first goal and say the press sort of forced this this collapse from PSG. But at the same time, I think a lot of this was just so unforced. The first goal that that Real Madrid scored, that Benzema scores comes off of Donnarumma not getting the ball off of his foot, and then Real Madrid win it, and, and Benzema scores the goal immediately afterwards. The next goal comes after Hakimi blows the offside trap after Luka Modric recovers the ball in, in Madrid's half and then pushes play forward. I mean, these things can't happen. And then the Marquinhos toe poke sort of trying to half-heartedly get the ball out of the box. You had a couple of those moments in this game, and the ball goes right to Real Madrid, and Benzema scores with his first touch, and it's 3-0, and this thing is over. This tie is over virtually at that point. PSG have a chance to get back in it, but they, they certainly don't in this game. It's a it's a weird one, Ryan. Right? I, I mean, I guess this stuff happens, so it's not all that weird. I don't think Real Madrid was very good in this game. I, I really don't, up until the goals start to come, and, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. I think that is a sentiment that's echoed by really both managers in this game. Carlo Ancelotti afterwards said the first goal was key. It changed the dynamic of the game, of, of the fans. After that, we controlled the game, we pressed. It was less difficult to win the ball back. That's true. I don't think Real Madrid, and I, I think this is more or less what Ancelotti's saying, I don't think Real Madrid did a whole lot of really good stuff in this game until they finally had a bit of momentum that comes from a good pressing moment, yes, but also a PSG mistake. Pochettino, after the game, said, and obviously he's he's biased here, just as Ancelotti is, Pochettino said, for an hour, we were better than Real Madrid. And I, I think he's right. I think he's absolutely right in this game. PSG were getting him behind. Kylian Mbappe was toasting Real Madrid's defenders over and over again in this game. Although, to be fair, Danny Carvajal, I think, did a better job than in the first leg, and, and he stood up a little bit better than he did in that game in Paris. But man, Mbappe in that goal was textbook killing Mbappe. I mean, he was getting him behind. Neymar played him in behind beautifully. 
And, and PSG at that point, I thought were doing just fine. They kept numbers back in this game. They had some defensive structure. But then the collapse comes. And Real Madrid, to their credit, take full advantage of that collapse. And, and this game's over. And PSG, once again, have absolutely crashed out of the Champions League. Uh, Joe, I, I agree with absolutely everything you've said in that PSG were well on top in this game and in this tie as well let's not forget the first leg they were the they were the yeah Madrid was terrible the Madrid was awful well. in that first leg they were really really bad yeah and and for an hour of this second leg they are in, they're in control Mbappe could have had two or three um and yet I was I was really really annoyed with myself because before about five minutes before Real Madrid scored that equaliser I, th- I thought about tweeting Real Madrid are just, are, they're going to get a goal in this game because that, that's just what Real Madrid do and there's going to be a lot of talk about PSG's mentality because certainly this isn't the this isn't the first time that we've seen this sort of collapse from them in the Champions League it's sort of become their thing but we should also mention on the flip side the way that Real Madrid seem to be emboldened by these sort of occasions how many times have we been here I'm not just talking about this season I'm talking about the last four or five seasons with Real Madrid where apparently they're not among the favourites, they're not as strong in the, as they've been in recent seasons, they're going out of the Champions League with 30 minutes to go, they're not playing well, and then they just they just draw on something. Um, there's an expectation in that dressing room every season that Real Madrid have to win or at least challenge to win the Champions League. And that is the, the, the same ex- expectation as in the PSG dressing room, but they're crushed by that expectation. There's a fear factor to that expectation, whereas Real Madrid, can, they kind of relish it. You know, going into that 30 minutes, I just knew, I didn't have much tangible en- e- evidence to go on, I have to say, but I just knew there was going to be something from Real Madrid, from Benzema, from Modric. And admittedly, I didn't think they were going to score three goals in as dramatic a fashion as quickly as they did. I thought maybe we would go to extra time. But yeah, there's just something in on the flip side of PSG's character where collapses seem to be in in their fabric as a club. This sort of comeback and and, and momentous finale to a game is in Real Madrid's. Yeah, Grant, there's there's actually um, a, a reason for that. Florentino Perez um, famously exchanged his soul with the devil at a crossroads <laughs> in exchange for Real Madrid being uh, uh, abnormally good in this competition. There's a song why, about why it. Why does he Johnson. want to get rid of the that Champions League? That was my bummer it's point. Like, it's like, <laughs> this was such an incredible moment for Madrid fans, and yet they're actively trying to get out of it, to basically kill this competition. And I saw it speculated as well that, like, what if this is the result that makes PSG like if because of the actions of uh, Khalifi and Leonardo, if they were to get like kicked out of the Champions League, what if this is the thing that makes them be like, you know what, we are joining the Super League, and then Madrid got, <laughs> I guess, two birds with one stone on the evening. Taylor, what I thought was interesting, I don't know if you're watching CBS after the game, but uh, I think Kate Abdo, the host, was she asked a question along the lines of, if you're killing Mbappe yep. and you want to win the Champions League. You have to go to Real Madrid next season, right? And the sort of the, the, the guest was like, well, "Yeah, he wants to go there anyway." But there's me sitting there thinking, "He's on a team with Neymar, with with Messi, with Hakimi, with Ramos, with Ronaldo, all these world class players." It, it seems crazy that he wants to go to a Real Madrid team who we've established aren't the best team in the world. It's 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 amazing, isn't it? It is. I, I think there is something to be said for like fighting spirit. And as cliche as that sounds, when you are a team like PSG or like the Miami Heat when they first had that trio, there's just this there's this level of hype that I think will allow you to steamroll some teams because they're just going to be so intimidated and it feels like this impossible task to deal with these players. But Once things stutter, once there is a little bit of a downturn in form, sometimes I feel like that 
level of confidence, that level of hype can really swing around on you and be a problem. And as soon as that first goal goes in, as fluky as it might have been, you can tell that there's just a like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. And when that second goal happens, the heads are down, Neymar is out of it, and you can just see that that spirit isn't there. There's an individual talent that combines some time to be an incredibly talented team, but I think backs against the wall, they don't have that sort of collective spirit that you need, especially in a competition like this. And I mean, there's no better evidence of it than this game with with a not particularly strong, not particularly weak, but not the strongest Madrid team we've seen just believing. And you could see it after that first goal. Uh, Benzema has the header that goes just wide. The whole stadium is up for it. Modric has the tackle. Then there's the equalizer. And... I mean, it's ridiculous that they score basically straight from kickoff that PSG just give the ball away and away uh, Madrid go. And I think Benzema is assisted by Marquinhos for the for the winner because he's trying to poke the ball away. Like you could just see that collapse there. And if you're uh, Kylian Mbappe to your original question and you look around and just see this collection of individuals who are all incredible, but when push comes to shove, can't reach that next level. They can't kick into that next gear. And you look across it. Those block hosts who are celebrating and, and feel like a unit. And as I said, if you watch that video of the team afterwards, they look like a very happy team. And also Tony Cruz, who is unemotional and cold and was not part of the celebrations, which was also hilarious. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think if you're killing Mbappe, that might be the final moment of like, yeah, I'm going to Real Madrid. That's happening. And if the Man City aggressive pursuit of Erling Holland is to be believed, then that kind of frees up some room even more for Madrid to make an a, a good offer and for Mbappe to accept that offer. And and PSG now have they now have baggage yep. as a club with, with these kind of collapses. And you can see you can see it in the way that they, they played the last thirty minutes of this game. And it doesn't even have to be you don't have to have been a player that has suffered uh, you know, one of those collapses before everyone talks about the the six one defeat to Barcelona. Obviously, there's been a lot of turnover in that PSG squad since then. Even the defeat to to Manchester United, where they lose that second leg three one. There's been turnover since then. You know, you look at Nuno Mendes, who's a new player at PSG for this season, but he'll have been asked so many times in the media this season about PSG holding on to leads or PSG being having a soft centre or not having the mentality to win the Champions League. So when PSG get into a situation where they do concede that slightly fluky first goal, that equaliser that Benzema scores, everyone in a PSG shirt mm-hmm. on that pitch is thinking about past collapses. They've lost their focus and you see it for the second goal where PSG have seven players in their box. They actually get back pretty quickly. It's Vinicius who has the ball on the left wing. He People get back quickly and he gets stopped and he has to turn back. And there's seven PSG players in the box but none of them none of them are actually focused on their job they're all watching the ball and so with Modric it plays that pass through to Benzema none of those seven players know where, know where Karim Benzema is they've completely lost him and that's the sort of thing that at, at the top level where there are you know the the the, the margins are so slim that that's the sort of thing that can make a difference so PSG aren't just they're not just playing uh, the best teams in Europe to try and win the Champions League, they're, they're almost playing themselves too. They do have baggage as a club. And so Mbappe going to to Real Madrid, he doesn't he doesn't have that baggage all of a sudden when he goes to to Real Madrid. He kind of has a, a bit of a clean slate yeah. to, to work with. So I can see I can see the appeal in going to Real Madrid. Not only are they are they like feeling that pressure, but it's also I feel like they've made themselves a fairly unpopular team in that 
they have all the money in the world and they're playing in a league where they are just going to dominate that league over and over again. And I think it was telling to me how if you went on Twitter, if you looked at like social media, if you watched the broadcasts, people were hyped for Real Madrid, a team that have never, yeah. ever been seen as the underdogs or the like plucky <laughs> no. upstarts. And yet against PSG, a team, because they've spent the way they have and they've brought in the talent they have, they are the villains. They have a target on their back. And what I kept thinking in that moment, and like I, I'm sure PSG fans will not love me saying that, but like if that were Inter, if Inter had that lead going into this game and then like uh, Handanovic gives up that goal. Is the crowd as up for it? Is Madrid as up for it? Is that fight there as opposed to when it's PSG, a team that has collapsed in the past? But also, can you believe it? Can, oh my God, we could, can you imagine beating this team? Like you can feel that level of energy of like, oh, it would be hilarious. It would be amazing. And that energy permeates. And I think the opposite is true for PSG. The, oh no, not again. You can see it on the faces. You can see it in the way the players play. They get scared. They get hesitant. And the result goes the way it does. Yeah, if I'm killing Mbappe, I'm thinking, yeah, Madrid looks pretty good right now. I can, yeah, definitely. So, uh, Joe, one final question from me. We talked about how, you know, uh, Inter didn't play Dzeko in this game. Why on earth didn't PSG play Lionel Messi in this? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I mean, I was kind of thinking it too, though, Ryan. I'm not going to lie to you. He he was not at his best in that first leg, in that first leg excuse me, and, and certainly wasn't at his best in this leg. It's a little bit of a worrying trend for Lionel Messi. He is still, the, in my view, the greatest player of all time and, and still incredibly influential when you watch him. But it hasn't looked quite right in this tie and, and maybe not this season for Lionel Messi. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair, Joe. And I, I do wonder whether, you know, the season is effectively over for PSG in that they're going to win the league title in France. They're now at the Champions League, which was their big objective. So I do feel like this is a... Um, a reasonable time to take stock of Messi in Paris. And I can't be the only one who's who feels so far. I keep getting presented with stats of, well, he's, he's actually scoring the same number of goals and he's still putting up great assist numbers and everything like that. But it, it has yeah. been underwhelming dream for team. me. Like it's, right. it's been pretty dull. There hasn't been those moments on... Sorry, is it Taylor I just yelled like I was just annoyed with the like he's doing as much as he was at Barcelona. It's like yeah, with the dream team in France. Like come on now, that's not the same standard. Yeah, and and it just it just it's felt very underwhelming. And I thought maybe going into into last night's match, I thought he's back in the Bernabeu, Real Madrid. You know, this is this is the stage. Maybe this is the game we're going to get the big messy performance. Okay, he's he's still as good as he always was, and this is his team now. But. It didn't happen at all. And I, I do wonder if, if Messi is, um, I don't know. Obviously, he was he never wanted to leave Barcelona in the first place, so he's always going to feel a sense of regret. But does, does he feel that maybe he's in the wrong place at this at this moment? It wouldn't surprise me if he does. He needs to go to Miami, right? Yeah, well, who doesn't? <laughs> Indeed. All right, I've got one final question for all of y'all. Do we think we saw the winner of this contest out of any of these four games that we've reviewed today? Uh, I I would yes. suggest that. Oh, go on, Joe. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I think all of the favorites are on this side, or at least are are happening this week. I think next week's round with Chelsea and Liverpool and Villarreal and Juve and Benfica, Ajax, Atletico Madrid, and Manchester United. I don't think any of those teams, as as big a fan of Ajax as I am, can make it past Liverpool or City or uh, or Bayern Munich. I'm not. I'm still not fully on the Madrid train. I know. Oh, there was a, it was a good game, and it was right. 
But I think there's issues there for how they played in the majority of this tie. I, I think we saw the winner. In, uh, on this show, we talked about the winner, I should say. Bear in mind, Joe, if, if Chelsea do make the final, they're going to have to walk to Paris for the final right. because there's these <laughs> right. sanctions on them at the moment. Uh, Graham, true. any thoughts on that? I was going to say... No, I think City are going to win it uh, this season, but mm. then I remembered that they are in this half of the draw and I just <laughs> barely watched their match or their tie in general, really. So, yes, I think the winner's on this side. Taylor? Uh, yeah, I think so. Any team in particular? Yeah, I think I said last week that I thought it would be Man City or Liverpool, and that's what I continue to feel like. I feel like if that's a way, for, if there's a way for those two teams to meet in the final, that's what we're going to get. I agree with you there. I think I probably think it's one of those two teams, but I do have a Premier League bias after all. I think that just about rounds up our look at the Champions League games. Oh, wait, CONCACAF Champions League. Joseph Lowry, oh let's go to CONCACAF oh Champions League corner real, real quick. Don't oh boy, Taylor, because we had a good night, right, Joe? It was good a good night. Nice. I like how the, oh, wait, that is sort of our approach to, to discussing and, and these And to CCR be clear, games. Ryan, sorry to interrupt you, Joe, and then I'll stop talking. The, oh, boy, was because, at, like, I don't know if we're going to go for another 45 minutes because I know that Joe's got some CCL love, <laughs> and I'm imagining that love is not in any way diminished right now. No, it's certainly not diminished, but we won't go 45 here. NYCFC had a 3-1 home win. The game was in Connecticut, so home is in hard air quotes there. (laughs) Over Guatemalan (laughs) club Comunicaciones, who beat the Colorado Rapids in the round of 16. This is the quarterfinals, by the way. So so there's only eight teams left at this point in the competition. Four are from Major League Soccer, three are from Liga Mekis, and and one from Guatemala, as I mentioned. The Seattle Sounders had a 3-0 home win over Lyon. The New England Revolution had a 3-0 home win in the snow over Pumas, and, and Montreal had a 1-0 away loss to Cruz Azul at the Estadio Azteca, which is not a horrible result for Montreal and Wilfred Nance. So overall, I mean, multiple, three three-goal games, three a three-goal scored by NYCFC in Seattle and New England, only one goal conceded by NYCFC and one goal conceded by Montreal. This is about as good of a first leg in the quarterfinal round of CCL that MLS teams could have hoped for. The real test comes when the majority of these teams go on the road. NYCFC, Seattle, New England will all go on the road next week. Montreal will be will be back um, at home. But that's when the real test comes. So MLS teams are in, are in a good spot heading into those legs, but we'll see what happens in uh, in the return fixtures. And NYCFC, are all, they're already on the road. They've been to California to play a home game as well. You <laughs> yeah, said the, Connecticut, LAFC, not really home so they, Yeah, they played in Los Angeles yeah. and in Connecticut so far. Uh, and, yeah. and no CCL games in New York City. Good stuff. Yeah. Connecticut's closer to home than California. Oh, that's so true. That is they're true. getting there. It's commutable, just about. Um, Joe, is this finally the year for an MLS team in this competition? Feels like it, doesn't it? It really does feel like that's where we're trending. There's a non-zero chance that we end up with all four teams in the semifinals, which assures that an MLS team will win this competition. I'm I'm struggling to get too jazzed about that, given the Liga Mekis teams that are in this competition. There's no Monterey, there's no Tigres. The, the powerhouses of today are not in this tournament for Mexico. And, and, you know, you can only play and beat who's in front of you. Yes, I recognize that. But this doesn't feel like it will be the if MLS wins, the major turning point that a lot of folks out there want it to be. And, and regardless, though, I think it, it almost might be a good thing because it forces us all to remember that MLS winning this competition in a one-off is not the goal here, right? That's not what soccer in the United States is trying to do. They're trying to be competitive 
forever, right, over the next five and ten years and, and become a real power player in this region that they're just not right now. And so I think one win of this competition certainly doesn't get you there, but but five or ten years of really competitive play in this competition, that starts to get you recognized, that starts to get you to Club World Cups and get you competing in a way that MLS just isn't doing right now. If if an MLS team wins the CONCACAF Champions League this season, does the League's Cup just explode like the Death Star? <laughs> I think it might. I mean, that's basically CCL is going to explode like the Death Star once the League's Cup gets really up and going. Yeah. So one of those two competitions will. A month-long sure. explosion, Graham. I'm looking forward to that one. Very good <laughs> stuff. Uh, my, my tip to win this competition, by the way, is New England because I've just looked at my notes and they've been autocorrected to New Enlarged. And that feels like an ominous <laughs> sign that they're going to be embiggened and emboldened in this <laughs> competition. Uh, oh, Joseph boy. Lowry, thank you for CONCACAF Corner there. And thank you very much for your contributions on this here podcast. You got it, Ryan Bailey. Graham Ruthven, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, fella. Pleasure was all mine, my friend. Indeed. Listener, thank you so much too. We'll be back with another one on the feed soon. But for now, bye. Bye.